I've come to pretty fundamentally believe that some things cannot and should not be discussed outside of personal experience. Now, that might sound odd coming from someone with a relatively traditional education in Western philosophy, but well, here I am. One of the keenest examples of this is gun violence. See, the way I see it, despite the numbers, despite the mathematics, everything stops with the phrase, I lost a loved one or I almost died. All that math, all those statistics only matter in the light of the value of human life. And the value of human life is established in places we call emotional or even sentimental, things outside mathematics and statistics. Taylor Schumann's accounting of gun violence is personal. And in my opinion, that makes it powerful. Not because the story is dramatic or even culturally triggering, but because there are only so many people who have heard gunshots near them and face the actual reality that they might die at the wrong end of a gun. Taylor Schumann has, and because she has, I believe her. And I think what she says matters. I think you will too. Check it out. Uh, where are you calling me from? Or where are you receiving this call from? Where are you? I am in Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston, South Carolina. It's yes. a vacation spot for a lot of people. It is. <laughs> yes. Is that home for you? Is that where you were born and raised? No, I'm actually from um, Southwest Virginia. Um, my husband and I moved here about two years ago. He okay. um, matched here for his pharmacy residency program. Oh, okay. And we just really liked it, so we decided to stay. Do you consider it home now? Does home does that feel like home now, or is where it are does. you? Where in Virginia are you from? Um, I'm from Salem. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is like right outside of Roanoke, Virginia. Um, my husband's from nearby there too. Um, but yeah, Charleston definitely feels like home. We were able to buy a house about a year ago, and um, we have a two and a half year old, and. Um, yeah, he has a great little school here, and we have a great church. So, yeah, we really love it. Is that the stuff for you? This is that the stuff that makes it feel home? Is like the is like the church community? Does home does does where you grew up still feel like home, or is it like that? Does it kind of move with you? Is it like some insurance where it's like it's depending on the car you're in, you're now insured here. Is that where home is? It's like what you build. Like, what's that look like for you? Yeah, you know we. Um... We have moved a few times, like since we've been married, we lived in Tennessee for about five years before we came here. And so I think we've always just kind of been able to like plant where, wherever we go. Okay. Um, but when we go home to visit family, it definitely still feels like home. Okay. Um, but yeah, once we started having those connections here, you know, getting our son in school and, uh, you know, stuff like finding a doctor and a dentist yes. and you know just like the functional stuff, like that. stuff of yeah. life yes yeah that like really it was like oh we live here we have a dentist here like this is our home <laughs> like, <laughs> that's pretty good so yeah and you've got one child yes henry he's almost three yeah i saw a recent uh one of your recent instagram posts in which there are probably a billion and a half legos on the floor you're like i have one kid like i've got <laughs> It's One, amazing. yeah. Like my friends that have multiple, I'm like, how? How? Yeah. Where, where? Where do they go? Because I have one. and <laughs> Where do they go? Enough. It's very good. <laughs> so, But we have 
two dogs, one that's a German Shepherd puppy still. So I feel like that's a couple more kids also. Yeah, yes and no. Uh, <laughs> right. Yes. Um, yes and you are, uh, as of um, not too long from now, what, July 20th, you'll be a published author. It's your first book. Um, was that a dream plan? Is Was it in the works somewhere, like in the recesses of your brain as a person growing up where you're like, I will someday write a book? Or was this like stirred by the particular moment? Like what brings you to become an author? Was it in you already? Or is this like, I need to put this thing somewhere and a book makes sense? How did, the, how did, how did book writing happen for you? It, yeah, it, it's been in me my whole life. Like really? my my parents, like my dad especially, would always say like, oh yeah, Taylor's going to write a book someday. So um, I always thought maybe I'd write like fic- uh, fiction books, like novels, or even like children's books. Okay. Um, and so, you know, after this happened, like writing was a way I I found a lot of healing and um, like did a lot of processing and stuff. And so it just kind of started to seem like, well, I, I want to write a book. Like I can yeah. write a book about this. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's a dream come true, just not this specific topic. <laughs> You're like, I'm hoping at some point I'm shot so that I can get this. Yeah, book so I can out. Write a book. yeah, like that like when I get messages that was like, You just wanted to be famous. I'm like, Yes, yeah. this is my long con. <laughs> we're gonna uh, get we're definitely gonna get into that. It's a fascinating thing that happens when she famous. <laughs> once you touch the one of those third rail topics, folks yeah. have all kinds of opinions about why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. Um Talk briefly about about uh, the impetus for this particular book. For folks, um, for my listeners who won't necessarily know who you are quite yet, and 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 like why uh, you know it'll be you know I will mention in the introduction, but you decided to write a book about being shot, and mm-hmm. it's but it's not just like hey I was shot I'm a victim memoir. You kind of do a thing with the book. That's it, the the subtitle has to do with a shooting survivor's journey into the realities of gun violence. So you sort of you're taking your moment mm-hmm. and using that moment or entering into like a pretty big. Um, I will use the word ugly. You don't have to say it. Uh, like ugly. Yeah. Conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, in America specifically about guns, gun use, and gun violence. Mm-hmm. Um, catch us up briefly on like the impetus for this book, your like personal process in deciding to write it. Like, How do you get there? Yeah, you know, after I was shot, you know, obviously that was like my initial like entry point to gun violence. Like I was experiencing gun violence. I was a victim of gun violence. Yes. But a school shooting, um, school shootings in general, are a really small part of gun violence in America. So I still didn't know much about sort of the everyday types of gun violence that are going on in America. Um, Firearm suicides, domestic violence um, incidents, like children finding loaded guns and killing themselves or killing other people by accident, you know, these these types of instances that are much more common than like a school shooting or a mass shooting. So I still didn't really know a lot about it. And I didn't really have to um, to know because I'd experienced this one very small part. And I, I had grown up pro-gun. I was still pro-gun for a while after I had been shot. So it wasn't like an automatic... Mm-hmm 
uh, switch had been flipped. Um, and so once I started learning, I started meeting other survivors and um, hearing other people's stories and just seeing how this one instance of gun violence had affected me and my family and would continue to affect me for the rest of my life. I could no longer like turn away from that yeah. in a large scale way anymore. And, um, you know, definitely went down a path of research and introspection and evaluating my beliefs and things I'd always believed and why, and did that still fit anymore? And yeah. I found that it didn't. Um, you said a couple of things in here I want to dig into. One of them is, um, I think it's a really interesting distinction that you, to some degree, make with the book, and you even did it in a sentence, is there's a, there's a uh, it's kind of a hallmark difference between victimhood and something mm-hmm. more like citizenship or advocate. Something is, mm-hmm. if, uh, when you talk about like be, mass shootings or like a school shooting, are, you said, like a smaller part of a much larger world. The mm-hmm. part of what victimhood will do long-term is, is that we end up projecting. Like, this is my experience, mm. and therefore, the world around me is shaped this way by you know, through the lens of my personal experience. And that can be true for a time, depending on what you've been, what you've been victimized by, what you've been hurt by. Like, live there. Yeah. Does that suck for you? But the longer journey is like, this is this moment whether it's an assault or whether it's uh, being you know, being shot or, you know, whether it's domestic abuse, like, is part of a much larger world that then, mm-hmm. like, even my own experience is a part of and subject to that my rules and my safety uh, and my comfort aren't actually definitive of the whole thing. Neither are my policy preferences. Mm-hmm. So entering into that kind of broader space, that's part of your journey is, like, there are things that you believed about the world politically, socially, that changed not just because of your experience, but because through your experience, you came into a much larger world of violence and gun ownership. Yeah, yeah. I think that's powerful. Can you talk briefly about what it meant for you to be, because you used the phrase pro-gun. Mm-hmm. What did it mean previously for you to be pro-gun? What does it mean to be pro-gun? That's a, for, me, for me, that's a confusing not because you said it, but it's always been confusing to me as a person. Sure. What does it mean to be pro-gun? What did it mean for you to be pro-gun? Yeah, I think in general, like when we use the term pro-gun, um, we're describing people who are very pro-Second Amendment, very um, pro, so for having a gun in their home, maybe for self-defense, maybe for fun as a hobby, maybe mm-hmm. they like to go shooting practice. And in general, um, I think it's it sort of describes someone who is pro-gun with very little regulation or very little concern for um, what possessing a gun means for the larger community. Yeah. Um, and so you yeah. you were a person who felt on principle people should have access to guns if they want if they, whatever restrictions are on the table whatever the bar is you're supposed to clear clear the bar and if you can clear the bar whatever that bar is you should have access to guns that's changed for you mm-hmm. can you talk about yeah. what it looks like for you are you anti-gun like what happened like for folks who are going to like oh you were pro-gun now you're anti-gun like how do you describe your position now 
Yes. Okay. So I personally, because I think that, um, yeah, there's a couple levels to this. Good. So I, I personally, for my own life, my own family, am anti-gun. We decided long ago um, we wouldn't have a gun in the home. That's just not part of how we are choosing to live our lives. However, mm-hmm. that does not mean I'm anti-gun for everyone. That doesn't mean I want to get rid of everyone's guns. I can be personally anti-gun and still respect the fact that we do have a constitutional amendment that says people have the right to bear arms. Um So for me, what that looks like is being thoughtful in the way that I consider what the Second Amendment uh, was intended for and what it can look like in a modern age now that we have all sorts of kinds of guns and all sorts of accessories for guns and ammo um, that we did not have at the time um, of the writing of the the Second Amendment Um, and, and being wise and knowledgeable and evaluating what regulations for guns would be smart, uh, what what seems to work, and figuring out how that can look for people who do want to keep their guns and do want to own guns and think yeah. they, they want to have a gun for self-defense. Um, there are ways to figure out how how those two can coexist, and, and that's what I'm really trying to do. How interested are you in being involved in like actual policy conversation? Because you're gonna like, especially once the book is out, you'll you'll have a story. You're um, you're a white woman. Your yes. opinion holds a very particular. <laughs> you're, you're a white woman, and, and therefore your opinion holds yeah. a very particular weight in yeah. the conversation um, about yeah. gun violence. Mm-hmm. How interested are you in like? actually being in policy conversation at the cost that that comes with is that is that a thing you're looking for seeking it is it's it's not something i want to do full time but it's definitely you know i've been able to have conversations with a couple um political leaders and and i enjoy doing that i what i enjoy doing is giving people insight into what it's like to be a shooting survivor, what it's like to kind of live in the aftermath in a country that doesn't really seem to weigh that type of experience very much when it comes to our gun laws. Um, So, but I think that really matters, right? Like sharing our stories, giving people a face um, to, to think about when they're casting their votes for a certain type of legislation. I, that is what interests me more than, um, maybe, you know, lobbying for specific gun laws, which, which is still very meaningful work. I'm still happy to do that when I can. Um, but with the caveat that I never want to do that if there's not, um, many seats at the table for people who have experienced other types of gun violence, people who don't look like me, um, people who live in communities that, that I am not part of. Um, cause like you said, I'm a white woman and I experienced a very specific type of gun violence that yes. doesn't have one that um, people don't mind talking about. It's it's on the news, you know, a school shooting, a mass shooting. Oh, it's so sad. It's so devastating. Mm-hmm. And of course it is. But what who we need to hear from along with me, maybe even more than me in many cases, is people who are experiencing everyday gun violence in places in our country that we don't seem to care very much about. Yes. Or we say, oh, well, that's that's the city. You know, it's so violent there. We can't. 
you know, we're not touching it. There, it's just violence. And, it's fascinating and, the way those things get divided up. And I'm thinking about two examples, yes. and that's part of, and um, that's part of why I point out like you, you, you being a white woman, yeah. um, is so one is um, so like 2020. There were fewer, which is a fascinating thing. People like, well, there were fewer mass shootings. It's like, well, no one was outside. Um, yeah. There, but still when you check out the statistics, and I think it was the Washington Post who posted the article, and then the way they break up the data, there were still like like 20,000 people. This is the way it's broken up. It's fascinating to me. There, yeah. there were 20,000 kill, people killed in what they call gun violence. And then they split off this entire other section of 24,000 people who died by suicide. As yeah. if there's this in, like intrinsic distinction between injuring yourself and injuring someone else with a gun. I don't get that. Like, that's fascinating to me that we'll split those two things up. And then the second thing is, <laughs> you know, today we're talking, this is, this is uh, June 22nd. And mm -hmm. on, uh, on, it's a Tuesday night. So two, two nights ago in Richmond, California, which is uh, seven miles that direction from me, uh, yeah. three kids killed, uh, five injured at a party. And the reason this isn't going to make national news is because it's in Richmond, California, which is a predominantly yeah. black neighborhood. So it's like there's a way in which like, well, of course those kids get shot. They're black. I mean, it's literally in the freaking narrative. It's fascinating the way we split these things up. And part of what I, what I feel like you're doing is saying like, listen, statistics, whether it's three killed and five injured or it's 24,000, these stories are actually all human stories. And should yeah. have a weight to them, all, each, that it shouldn't yeah. just be a number. That kind of comes at a cost for you, though, correct? That, like, people have to feel your story. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's one of those things where if I can get people to feel certain feelings toward me and my story, and not in a manipulative way, no. of course, just in a way, this is my reality and I, I wanna share it and invite people in. If I can get people to connect with my story, then that's the point which I can say, well, you listen to my story, yeah. what do you think about these numbers? Yeah. These are all people just like me and yeah. they just happen to live in a different type of place than I live in. Yeah. Um, and and what does that look like? And and the suicide conversation is always especially interesting to me because yes. when, you know, I'll say, you know, okay, well, every year, and I can't tell you how many times this has happened where I say, wow, every year in America, you know, on average over 40,000 people die um, from gun violence. And the first thing people will say is, well, how many of those are suicides? Right. <laughs> as if they don't count, yep. as if it, it doesn't have anything to do with a gun being present, which yes. we know that it does. Absolutely. We know statistically that access to a gun, no matter if it's yours or if it's just in your house, um, you are three times more likely to die by by uh, firearm suicide. Yeah. Just the access to a gun. So of course it's related. And that's what I say, like, yeah, you know, I mean, I've had times in my life, like after this, where I've been um, so low, so depressed, like, yeah. and I thought, wow, it would be easier just to not be here. And the the access to a gun in that in that yes. time of my life makes it so much more likely that I would just say make a quick decision. The gun's right there. 
and and make that choice. And so, of course, the gun is is involved in this. Of course, this is gun violence. Um, and and it's like these people are real human people. And why on earth would we try to separate these? But people have uh, stronger feelings yeah. about the term gun violence when it's a you know a dangerous yes. person that has a gun. Um, yeah. We we just care more about those types of stories and and people say well they made the choice they decided it's not a danger to the community well of course it is it really is is. and it's a strange it's a strange collision not collision it's a strange tension in the personal responsibility narrative right Mm. that a lot of a lot of the conversation around gun ownership and gun violence gun ownership and and violence has to do with personal responsibility but then once that personal responsibility conversation gets couched in the decision someone makes to end their own lives, it gets really, really confusing and like nuanced in a way that kind of messes with the personal responsibility narrative as, a, as like a monolith. That so long as Absolutely. you're being personally responsible, then you can be a goner. My father ended his life with a handgun. Mm. And uh, weeks before that, he had tried to end his life with medication. I found him. Well, he was uh, like, I found him in the, in the back of the house, came home, found him on the couch and he had been pumped full of meds and I was able to carry him to the car and, and drive him to the hospital and like take care of him. I couldn't do that with the gun. Right. And the difference there for me, when folks do exactly that, they're like, we talk about gun violence, like, yeah, well, how many of those are suicides? And it's like, I don't know why you write it off as if having access to a gun doesn't make it easier for people who are in low places to end their lives and thereby really injure lots and lots of people who love them. Yeah. Like, why is that not like, what, you know, we, we, that is gun violence. In fact, there's a, yes. it's a violence you're perpetrating on lots and lots of people Yes. Uh, by ending your own life and having mm-hmm. the gun makes yeah. that. Let's talk about, uh, you mentioned being low and, um, and specifically for you, and this is a conversation, one of the, one of the bits of the conversation has to do with gun violence. Um, one, of the, one of the bits of conversation around gun violence has to do with mental health. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about your own process and journey from here, uh, you know, from, from being injured, uh, from being shot, to putting the book together and to now thinking about be, like being a public face like more so than even before, kind of put, being in this place of, of authority and yeah. having to carry the story and other people's stories. Talk about your mental health journey and like talk about the things you're doing to stay healthy, stay centered, therapy, break it all down. Yeah. So right after the shooting, I think it was decided by everyone around me. And I'll I'll say this to start off. I am very fortunate to have an amazing family. Um, I was engaged at the time. We were about six weeks away from our wedding uh, when the shooting happened. So I had an amazing fiance, my husband now my family, my in-laws, so many people to support me um, that a lot of people in my position don't have. Um, And so I think it was decided by the masses around me that I I needed counseling, (laughs) which is true. I did need counseling. And I said, I don't want to go. I'm not ready to talk about it. I I don't want to go. I don't want to go. For you internally, you just weren't in a place where you wanted to be in therapy right away. It was like I... It was like I couldn't even think about sitting down with someone and explaining what had Mm. happened to me or talking about it because I didn't even know how to do that for myself. Mm. 
so I think I was scared. Yeah. And um, so my mom and my fiance basically put me in a car and said, we're going to see a counselor. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, they had gotten a, re- um, a recommendation from a, a family friend who was a, a psychiatrist at the time. And, and they took me. And, um, you know, by the time I got there, I was like, okay, I'll go. And, um, you know, I sat <laughs> I, like, I like that you decided that you would go once you were I was already there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, I sat down and she was like, okay, well, you know, I'm so glad you're here. And I was like, well, yeah, I don't, I didn't really have a choice. So I don't recommend the kidnapping to take to therapy method, but in my case, it, it was effective. Um, but I, I sat down with the kindest woman in the world. Her name is Martha and she was a Christian counselor. And, and I know that a lot of people have really bad experiences with in a Christian counseling setting. But for me, she was a licensed professional counselor. She just happened to be a Christian. And, and I needed that at that time. Like yeah. I needed someone that I could process faith questions with. And that was also a, a very qualified um, mental health professional. And, and I was very thankful to find that. And she was what I needed. And she let me cry and say things that I couldn't say to anyone else. And she helped me basically find a way to be a living human person again. And, and that's what I needed to kind of get back into life and figure out what my life was going to look like. And, um, a couple years later, I, I transitioned to seeing, um, a psychiatrist that specialized in, um, PTSD. Hmm. Um, he had worked with, um, I grew up near Virginia tech and so, and I went to Virginia tech for school and and he had worked with a lot of survivors of of that shooting. Hmm. Um, and he was able to kind of help me understand more of the science stuff, um, the, yeah. you know, the stuff that was going on in my brain and my body and, and what yeah. my body was, was doing and, and trying to protect me from. And so I like to say, you know, I needed Martha to help heal my heart. And then yes. I needed this doctor to help kind of heal my mind and help That's really me good. understand. Um, and I needed both. And now I have a, another great therapist, so I'm kind of making the rounds, but I there love therapy. Go. I, you know, I, there's no way I could have, healed in the way that I have without people because I didn't have anyone around me that experienced gun violence. I felt very alone and I needed people to help me understand and to say like, I feel so alone in this. No one understands. I don't understand. Please help me. And, and, and I'm thankful that I did. And it, it helped me, uh, learn to recognize things in myself, um, signs that maybe I'm not functioning so well or that I've done too much that I've taken in too much and I need to, um, kind of recenter and and that has made it possible for me to write this book and to talk about it. Um, without that kind of foundation, I don't know that I could have, could have done it because it was really hard to kind of get into this stuff that I went through and, and, uh, give it out to the world. Um, but so for me, when I start feeling really hopeless about the state of the world or start having thoughts, it's like, well, there's no point in me doing this. You know, nothing is good. Everything is terrible. Um, I know I need to take a break. And for me, the, the big thought I have that I know, okay, I've got to, I've got to chill. I have this thought, you know, I'll read Twitter and, and see issues and, things and I'll think, well, I can't care about this. I Hmm. can't care about this. Hmm. That for me is always, okay, I got to take a break. Oh, good. I got to take a break. That's That's like a big sign. Um, and I've learned that about myself. So now, you know, I, like I said, I'm seeing my therapist and she's been so helpful. I'm getting wise counsel from 
uh, my pastor who is also an author herself and uh, and just people close to me that that I can confide in and talk to and um, yeah some days are hard but yeah. um, God, God has been really faithful in, in giving me people like that to mentor me and, yeah. and guide me. There's a little bit of a narrative um, parallel um, and thread running through the, the therapy conversation, the, our, this conversation between you and I about therapy and, and the, the experience of gun violence that has to do with control, right? That, mm. that one of the terrifying things about a shooting, one of the terrifying things about violence in general, um, whether that's spousal abuse or child abuse or gun violence, any sort of trauma is the lack of control. I don't have yes. control over it. I'm not in a position, I can't take care of, I can't protect myself. Mm -hmm. Similarly, with therapy, and there, I mean, I get it is it is slightly funny that your family kidnapped you to take you to therapy. Um, <laughs> the other side of the coin there is also like the terror that comes from experiencing something in my own mind, my own body oh. that I don't, I don't, I don't have handles for, I don't have language for, and I, I feel lost in my own psychology. Yes, which yeah. can very much feel similar to being stuck in a mall with a shooter on the loose. I don't have, yeah. I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know if he's coming back in the room. I don't yeah. know these things. I know that I've got stuff going on. It's one of the reasons like this podcast is, is supported by, by BetterHelp because yeah. I, I constantly come back to conversations with folks in, you know, on the podcast and in between podcasts in which they're up against exactly this. I have stuff happening to me. I don't have language for, I don't have in a sense power over yeah. And a therapist, a really good therapist, can give you that language yeah. to say, hey, listen, you were overpowered. You were overwhelmed. Let's give you language yeah. to understand that by. Yeah. Some of that language for you, and I want to come back to, I want to talk about Twitter in a little bit, uh, briefly, <laughs> which is yeah. always the way I want to talk about Twitter, to talk about trauma. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about the language um, around religion for you. Yeah. Because there's a, uh, and I... I'm going to make an assumption here, and I'm super okay being wrong about it. But there's a little bit of a tension here because um, you, um, even in the way you write your, your story initially, you lean heavily, like even in the moment, you lean heavily on your own religious convictions, beliefs, like, the, you know, you, there's, a, there's a moment of prayer, mm -hmm. um, you recall like during, you know, like while you'd been shot and you're bleeding, you're actually like remembering scripture from the Bible, you're praying, you're leaning into your faith, you're depending on your mm -hmm. faith. At the same time, a lot of the, a lot of the, the I'll say it like this, this is my language, it doesn't have to be yours, so you can respond to this and however you want sure. to. The dominant religious culture mm -hmm. in our, in our world is a religious culture that champions access to guns mm -hmm. for people like Neil McInnes. Mm -hmm. That's a bit of a tension there, that this is a place in religious, you know, your religious convictions are, uh, you know, you're couched in a religious understanding uh, of who God is and God's availability to you. And then the dominant voice who carries that culturally into the world is also the same voice that it's saying people like him should have access to guns if they yeah. want them 
is that a, do you feel that tension in you socially or emotionally where like this is who i am this is also who i am i like here i don't like talk about that for a little while like yeah this is family business this is cultural yeah. business that's hard that's weird yeah you're a christian christians yeah. want people to have guns that's also yeah. weird can you talk a little bit about that soup i don't need you to have a specific answer but like wow no, that's good that's bonkers yes yeah yes and so yeah, when I when I talk about this, you know, for people who don't know me or who haven't, um, you know, followed me for a bit, they might think that, you know, I was um, pro-gun, I got shot, and then I was anti-gun. And, you know, boom, boom, boom. Right. And that's really not what happened. There was, a, you know, a period in there where I was processing, I was kind of asking myself a lot of these questions, yeah. you know, because I had witnessed this up close and personal. Yes. You know, I, I had looked into the eyes of someone who had a gun and wanted to use it to kill me. And like, I had long been a champion of the right to access that gun with yeah. very little regulation, um, to being part of that. And so what I like to say is that God really used my experience to allow me to identify more with people who have experienced all sorts of injustices. Not that I can ever know what it's like, um, you know, to be in certain groups of people. You know, I, I can't know what it's like to experience racism or racial violence or, um, you know, I've never lived in extreme poverty. Um, you know, I've never been in, in those marginalized communities. But I experienced God in a way that I hadn't before which was that I was in a period of extreme suffering, mm. extreme loss, mm. extreme physical pain. And suddenly the God of, um, you know, maybe abundance and safety that I had been connected with for so long and believed in suddenly was, I was experiencing, you know, the verses about how, you know, God is near to the brokenhearted and he binds up our wounds yeah. and, you know, that we're, we're to care for, um, the widow and the orphan and, and the people who are in poverty and were to care for them and and be the hands and feet of Jesus to them. And so experiencing that God um, mm. and experiencing how to love people the way that that God loves people, when I started examining, you know, this feeling I had towards the guns and towards the Second Amendment, those things just couldn't fit for me anymore. Mm. It didn't make any sense to me wow. that, like, this was the God that I loved, that loved me, that had shown himself to me. And I also, um, you know, believe in like having a gun to kind of kill anyone, you know, in self-defense or not that I had ever owned a gun. I didn't have a gun, but, you know, that's what I was supporting for other people to do yep. um, or to be able to just buy whatever guns they have, carry them in a grocery store, you know. Um, all these kind of things, it just, I couldn't make those pieces fit together. Yeah. They didn't work for me. And that's what ultimately led me to that kind of final um, transformation where I was like, this can't work for me anymore. And I don't, I don't really know how it can work for other people too. And um, so, yeah, that was kind of really how that happened for me. It's a, it is a, uh, is an act of uh, love to and this is always true is an act it is an act of love to remain in a uh, relationship with and um to mean and to remain like publicly associated with people 
with who we actually fundamentally disagree on vital things, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an actual, it's, it's part of what, what does now and will continue to make what you're doing a loving act is that you're, you know, you're published on InterVarsity Press, mm-hmm. um, a wonderful publisher, yeah, whose books predominantly serve a community of people who would normally identify with being pro-gun. Yeah. And um, that, that as a cultural reality puts you in this very interesting position um, mm-hmm. to, to lead from a place of vulnerability and power, which is part of why I was asking the therapy question as well, because yeah. that shit's just going to get hard. Um, can you talk lastly about like the public expression part of this? And um, we talked about Twitter for a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I ask all my guests about, for the most part, all my guests about life online. Yeah. Um, Twitter, uh, to some degree, Facebook, they can be really helpful places. They can be really volatile places. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about your experience of life online in, in this arena. Yeah. Um, and, um, is it a, is it a helpful place? Is it a healthy place? Is it a place of work? Do you feel connected? Is it just a place for you now, where like I can be there for a bit and it's work, and then I need to go home? Talk about life online for you now. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, I will say that for me, Twitter is my favorite social media platform, which oh, wow. is something I think a lot of people you one of those not understand. Yeah, I don't get that. Well, I am. And this, this is the thing I, people I've met on Twitter accounts, I followed, um, helped me transform so much. Hmm. Like there are so many, uh, stories and people and experiences I have access to through Twitter that I could not have in my own life. Hmm. And, you know, I, for a long time was one of those people that kind of like, would like tentatively follow people I disagreed with. Cause I was like, mm, I kind of connect with this, but like, I don't know. I still believe this other thing. Hmm. So I was kind of one of those people that like lurked in the background and then was, was so changed by many of these voices on Twitter. And I just hmm. thought, well, it worked for me. Like maybe I could start here and connect with people. And my goal there was always to connect with people Yes. and then kind of invite them into what I'm talking about and earn their respect that way. But I always, I thought the people who have helped me change and helped me understand things, um, I got to know them first as a person and I respected huh. them as a person and then I was able to kind of process what, what they're saying. Yeah. And um, so that's always been the goal for me. And I spent, I spent a lot of time kind of like cure, I kind of hate the word curating. <laughs> it feels very like white lady Instagram. That's but, okay kind of curating my space. And so I've, connect, I've connected with really awesome people and I follow people that I really like to follow. Yes. And I like to see pictures of their kids and I like to hear about what they're doing on the weekend. And then I, I also like to hear their opinions on things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I love it. But that took time. And like, I didn't just log into Twitter and be like, hope it, hope it's good. Hope this ends up being a good place. Like, it takes work. It does. And so like, all, you, like all relationship, it takes work. Yes. And so yes. ultimately, I mean, I, there's an acknowledgement section in my book for, I call my Twitter fam, hmm. for people on Twitter who encourage me and pray for me. I mean, during the re- the writing of this book, I had 
friends there um, kind of coordinate and they started sending me like little care packages and stuff to encourage me because I was just having a really hard time. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are people who sent me money for meals when I was in a lot of pain and, and didn't want to cook dinner. And, you know, the, I, I've just started the launch team for this book and mm-hmm. we've got about 130-ish really awesome people. And you know how many people I know from like my real in-person life? Less than 10. Yeah. And so, like, these are people who support me and encourage me, and that means everything. Yeah. And and that's also where I find that I'm able to really connect with people, share my story, and now I get a lot of messages, and I'm th- so thankful to be able to say this. Yeah. I get so many messages from people that are like, I didn't know a lot about guns, or I was pretty pro-gun, we've always had guns, but I read your story, I listen mm. to things you say, and I really see what you're talking about now. That's good. And I, you know, I believe these things. So as often as I get a mean message or a nasty comment or a threat of violence, which does occasionally happen, for every one of those, you know, there's 50 positive ones. Um, And, 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 you know, that's, that's what I love. And so, yeah, it can be, Twitter can be a dumpster fire. Facebook, I don't, I don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole, but like, you you can make it, you can make it what you would like it to be. And if, it's not great. You can take a break. Like, yeah, you know, but so for me, it's a good place. And, and I'm thankful for that. Cause I know it's not such for everyone. It's not. Um, what will it look like, um, for this project specifically to be successful? I, t- I like I'll coach my clients, um, yeah. in the direction when we talk about success, uh, the success is a moving target. Yeah. Uh, and really, um, you get to decide where that target sits like as a as a person as a as as an author podcaster whatever it is you're doing success generally in my estimation it really has more to do with like where what are you wanting to achieve yeah as opposed to like well you got to sell 20,000 books and then you're a success like no who cares rats no one cares for you what was what like how will you know in your own body that this project has been has been successful do you have specific metrics do you have visions dreams thoughts what will it mean for this to be successful yeah you know i was i like just had a conversation with my husband kind of about this where i was just saying i don't i don't want to measure the success of this with numbers um what i hope to accomplish with this is is something i might not really be able to see Hmm. um is that I want, I would love to create a way that people can be thoughtful about their opinions about guns. Hmm. Um, I think for a lot of people, you sort of grow into adulthood with the opinions you, you have had or that have been your families. Yes. Um, and a, a lot of us, we reach adulthood and we're like, oh, why did we, do I believe that? Why do I believe that? Yes. And I think a lot of people were scared to ask those questions, so sometimes we just don't. Um, but I, I, even for the most pro-gun person who might pick up my book, if I can offer them a way to be thoughtful about how they they think about guns, yes, that's what I want. That's good. And they might they might read it and consider my points and and stay where they're at. And if yes. so, I still consider that a success because they gave it. A chance they read it they considered it yes. um and i consider that a win 
Yes. Um, and, you know, and, and just in general, equipping people to, to enter into these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing that I've reminded myself, I used to have a sticky note on my computer while I was writing the book was, and it just said, your book will not end gun violence. Mm-hmm. Just really helped me take the pressure off. Wow. Um, my goal here is to share my story to mm. give people a way to think about gun violence if, if they've not ever had to before and, and to really care for, for people um, in their community that are experiencing gun violence, just to think about it more. Um, and and that's that's what I, I want to see from that's the book good. more than any number or any sale. Or um, if I could hear from a few people that along those lines I, I would love to get those kind of messages and, yeah. and talk to people about that stuff you know I, I would love that but yeah it might be things that I, I can't really see quite yet that's good um, and you know just hoping for peace for that <laughs> I guess there is a we're in a moment um, and by we I mean folks like you and I we're at a moment um, in which there is a kind of um, a kind of courage um, I'm not exactly sure how to phrase this. There's a kind of courage in taking the responsibility to, that folks like you and I can have, which is to say, like the ability to wisely, prophetically, um, and the, and critically speak to privileged, dominant spaces. Mm. To do that well and wisely now um, mm. is a kind of sacred responsibility that it, yeah. it yes it has been like just a lot easier for folks for white middle upper class folks to just serve white middle upper class spaces yeah. but the more time has passed with uh more information more of a general sense of consciousness uh with regards to the, the interconnectedness of connectedness of things mm. the kind of responsibility that you have now just to speak to predominantly white, predominantly conservative spaces, predominantly very privileged spaces about like the connectedness, uh, you know, their gun ownership, our gun ownership and black violence. Yeah. You get access to places, you will have access to places that black activists just won't. Yeah. And what a power that is for you and i i wish you the 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 greatest success not just for the sake of like black sisters and brothers but for the sake of the souls yeah really loving well-intended white men who (laughs) literally have no idea how um how busted they make the world by ignoring the connections between their personal convictions yeah and that forty thousand people a year so yeah. I'm I'm thankful for your book being in the world. That's why I wanted to pass uh, your story as best I can on to the people I have access to. So blessings Thank and you. luck and all of those things to you in your journey. Thank you for, for spending some time with us. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. This was great. And thank you for listening to this episode of the At Sea Podcast. If you would like to follow up with Taylor Schumann and find out what she's up to, you can visit Taylor Schumann. It's got two ends at the end of it, dot com. You can order her book, which is called When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough from any of the sources you normally find books. If you'd like to be part of the team of folks who make this podcast happen, you can jump to patreon.com backslash Justin McRoberts and join this team. We would love to have you. Until next time.